Welcome to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. Today is Monday, December 4th, day 59 of the war with Hamas. Amanda Borshel Dan here with our editor David Horowitz and news editor Amy Spiro. Hello to you both. Hi, Amanda. Good morning. The ground operation continues in Gaza, now in all parts of the Strip, and the Knesset is in session today. Yesterday, Likud held a stormy faction meeting that David will tell us about. Amy is here to speak about Those We Have Lost, our massive project to memorialize the victims of the October 7th massacre and the ensuing war. We'll both bring a few stories that moved us in particular. All this and more when we're back. You're listening to this podcast, so I know you care about the war in Israel right now. And you've been reading the headlines. Massacre in Gaza. Genocide perpetrated by Hamas. No, by Israel. But if you've been listening to this podcast long enough, you know one thing. This stuff seems complicated. And honestly, no one can really just pick a side or decide an opinion without really learning. Without really knowing what you're talking about. And that's where this podcast comes in. Check out Unpacking Israeli History, now in its sixth season. They have episodes with topics ranging from what is Hamas anyway, to whether Israel should ransom captured soldiers, and the history of Israel and its disengagement from Gaza in 2005. Unpacking Israeli History cuts through the noise and helps you understand Israel's present through understanding Israel's history. So... Educate yourself. Learn the history behind the headlines. Find Unpacking Israeli History wherever you listen to your podcasts. Seventy-five IDF soldiers have fallen in Gaza as of this morning. The IDF hit some 200 sites overnight, and the ground offensive pushes ahead now also in southern Gaza. The IDF said that last night the Negev Brigade destroyed Hamas infrastructure inside a school in northern Gaza, and inside the school complex, troops found two tunnel entrances, including one that was booby-trapped and other weapons. David, as the ground offensive enters southern Gaza as well, all eyes are, of course, on civilian casualties. And of course, international pressure mounts as the number climbs. What can you tell us about this balancing act between the IDF and international diplomatic efforts? Well, Amanda, it's uh, the first thing is we don't really know um, the specifics of casualties. The only source of information on deaths and injured in Gaza is what is often internationally called the Gaza Health Ministry, which is Hamas. Um, there is an assessment among some that the overall figure might be relatively credible. Um, the breakdown is impossible to interpret uh, in terms of the distinction between Hamas people and civilians, Hamas people and children, uh, including, for example, the question of whether children of 18, 19 on a Hamas list are in fact, or some of whom are, are in fact Hamas fighters and so on. But the big picture is, an immense amount of death and destruction as the IDF has tried to, in the in the aims of the war, dismantle Hamas. Uh, and that has brought growing international pressure. And we saw it publicly from the, the main partner, protector, uh, um, empathizer with Israel, which is the United States. Tony Blinken was here late last week and publicly said, we cannot have a repeat of the mass civilian deaths. 
that took place in northern Gaza when you go south. And before you go south, he said, again, publicly, um, there have to be measures in place to make sure that Palestinian non-combatants in Gaza have somewhere to go. Uh, and the IDF, um, I think um, privately for, for certain, and I think it's indicated publicly, has um, certainly amended um, some of the plans for what it is now starting to do in the South in the light of that American pressure. So, for example, a map was issued, um, very complicated, but I assume if you're in Gaza, um, it would be um, potentially helpful to, uh, telling Gazans uh, um, by a breakdown, a sort of num numerical breakdown of areas where they should flee to if and when the army tells them that in their area it is about to attack to try to target Hamas and Hamas infrastructure and so on. Um, you know, the, the southern part of this operation is only now starting to play out. Uh, it's premature to say that the IDF is fighting in a different way, but it might be. It might be that it's not um, bombarding as widely. Uh, it might be that it is not sending troops in such um, vast numbers into particular areas, but we don't know that yet. Uh, but clearly there's a tension there, and I think there's been an internalization by the people directing this uh, um, for Israel. Uh, that they need to make sure that the United States is satisfied as as much as it can be with what Israel is doing, because that's essential to keeping this window open for the ground operation. And it appears, at least according to comments that we heard from National Security Council spokesman John Kirby, that the U.S. is on board with what the IDF is doing so far. Yeah, that's right. Ye yesterday, um, he spoke about um, Israel sort of giving notice of where it plans to attack, um, I uh, partly in light of the American criticism and, and sort of semi-marveled what, what other kind of army would, would do that, would tell people where it's going to attack and so on. So uh, at least one voice from the administration uh, recognizing that Israel has taken on board some of the American concerns. Let's shift to internal politics. And what can you tell us about the relationship between Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and Defense Minister Yoav Gallant? It appears, at least from this bystander, that there are some cracks. What are you seeing? Yeah, I don't think you have to be um, you know, p particularly perceptive to see that there are some cracks, given that on Saturday night, from the same place in the Defense Ministry IDF complex, um, they gave two separate press conferences. Uh, Gallant spoke very, very briefly and just uh, talked about um, plans for the uh, campaign against Hamas going ahead. And then not very long afterwards, Netanyahu gave a very long press conference. He was, he was speaking for about 40 minutes, took lots of questions by, by his standards, certainly a long time, and was asked, why are you giving your own press conference when the defense minister was just here a few minutes ago? And he said, well, I wanted to do it with him, but he didn't want to. Uh, and Gallant's office issued a statement saying sometimes we have joint press, press conferences and sometimes we have them separately. Now, given that this is a country in the middle of a war, um, a country that is enduring um, its worst trauma since foundation, not only October the 7th, but of course the ongoing catastrophe of um, so many hostages still being held in Gaza, a truce that collapsed um, because Hamas was not prepared to release the rest of the women uh, and children in the designated group that was agreed. Um, given that you've got, I don't know, more, certainly more than 100,000, maybe still as many as 200,000 people who are um, in internally displaced uh, and all the other complications and implications of this war, it is frankly um, dreadful, pathetic, I don't know what words you want to use, that the people running it cannot you know, even bring themselves to present uh, a united front. I think the sort of showcasing of that division, I'd like to think it's um, 
um, it, it does not reflect disunity in the management of the crisis, but I don't know. Uh, and, uh, you know, this is a, these two are, are a pair um, who, who have had the worst possible relationship just months ago when Gallant uh, tried to persuade Netanyahu to abandon the judicial overhaul gambit, not because he opposed it, he said, but because he thought it was sowing such uh, dissent within Israel and within the army that our enemies were emboldened and was fired for having issued that warning and then rehired. Um, so the relationships are not good. Um, I don't think that Gallant uh, knew something specific was about to happen, as happened on October the 7th, uh, but plainly there was a tangible threat and our enemies were emboldened. And the least you'd think that these people could do was keep it together and try to um, help put back together uh, um, uh, the Israel that they left um, more divided than was necessary and that proved to be so vulnerable. I would say that a showcase of the divisions within the war cabinet and the Likud party specifically was their faction meeting last night. And there were all sorts of allegations flying out of there, including that Rear Admiral Daniel Hagari is not representing the right-wing government narrative and what he's speaking and, and where is Gallant and all sorts of things were going on there. Tell us a little bit about what happened. Well, you've kind of summed it up there, Amanda. And it, it is, I mean, the only word for that is pathetic unless you want to use worse words this is the party of government. This is the main party in the Knesset. I mean, the survey suggests it wouldn't be if we had elections now, but that's not the point. The, this is the party that that uh, won the public's trust more than any other to lead the country. The country is in an ex incredibly challenging situation. It's deeply traumatized. And yesterday's Likud faction meeting was from another planet. Uh, it was people bashing uh, um, officials. It was uh, incredibly partisan politicking. I mean, the one person, I suppose, the, in the public figure in the last two months who has emerged with some credibility and who is quite widely trusted, mainly because he doesn't seem to lie, um, is the army spokesman. And, you know, I don't know what agenda anyone else thinks he's following. He seems to me to be following the agenda of trying to explain to people what is happening and being empathetic to the people who are in, in the worst pain. Uh, and you've got, you know, Knesset members from the party of government bashing him, I mean, ridiculously. It's just, it's just pathetic. And unfortunately, it reflects the, the abiding dysfunction of the government. I mean, I, I referred already to lots and lots of people displaced. You know, it, it's, been, it's been two months now. Why are there not very straightforward provisions for people to have their, their rent paid uh, so they can move to somewhere semi-permanent? Um, schools given ad additional funding in those areas so that additional children can go uh, and start taking care in the short term of, of the needs of people because it might be uh, some time yet before people can return uh, both to the south and to the north. I know there are, there are hopes uh, in the defense ministry in those, in, among those planning this war that some of the Gaza area communities, not immediately at the border, but just a little bit further away, may be able to go home in areas where there are homes to go to, uh, maybe as soon as a month from now. Uh, but the broad e evacuation of people, I don't think most many of those people are going to be going home in the, ver in the very near future. And the government is failing them. And up north, I mean, there's, there's talk that uh, things may get potentially worse before they get better because it's untenable to have Hezbollah uh, as close to the fence as it was before the fighting broke out. So you've got to provide for these people. So instead of bashing officials and playing stupid party politics, uh, the Likud party, which provides many of the ministers in this dysfunctional government, should be governing. David, thank you for expressing how you feel. 
<laughs> Thanks, Amanda. <laughs> we'll go to a short break. The surge in anti-Semitism since the October 7th attacks has changed the Jewish community's relationship with a slew of social and political issues. In the newest episode of The Glue, Jewish Federations of North America President and CEO Eric Fingerhut talks to Congressman Richie Torres, who has proved to be a pro-Israel bridge builder about everything from DEI to social media. Their conversation is fascinating. Listen to it and subscribe to The Glue with Eric Fingerhut wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. Amy, thank you so much for joining me. We are here to discuss this massive project that you are spearheading, which is our Those We Have Lost project. And to date, do you know how many obituaries we've covered so far? Yes. Yeah, so as of uh, this recording, we have 240 posts up um, on the page, and those represent, uh, by my count, uh, 300 lives um, that were lost, because obviously a number of the posts are about entire families or couples or siblings. Um, so 300 is obviously an enormous number uh, to cover, and yet obviously is still still a fraction of of the people killed on and since October 7th in Israel. About a quarter, actually, which is not bad. And it's a daunting project, and it's something that we discuss all the time, how every victim deserves to have his story memorialized and remembered. But it's not just his story. It's also you dive in and you bring how people are eulogizing those they've lost and you bring their personality into these pieces, which is so important to not just have the dry facts. So how are you bringing these people to life in a way? Yeah, so it, it tends to involve a bit of research. Um, and obviously, as we've said, it's a massive undertaking. So I am limited in my resources, but I do try to get a sense of who everyone is. So sometimes that's even looking at their own social media, what's available, um, see who they were, what they like to do. And then, yeah, obviously reading a lot of eulogies of family members, of friends, things on social media. Um, I've also watched a lot of funeral uh, footage hear eulogies from family members at gravesides. Um, and, you know, obviously all of those involve a lot of grief, but I try to also find in them, you know, details of, of who these people were and who they, you know, who they were to their family and who they were to their friends and um, what kind of legacy they left behind. And one of the things I find, because I read all of these pieces that you mostly you write, other members of staff as well, but one of the things that I find uh, just so indicative of the Israeli experience is that through these eulogies, you have a lot of humor as well. And that's such an Israeli thing to do. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, <laughs> in a way, I think, um, you know, you and I talk so much about how you know, it's been almost two months and we're obviously still telling stories of people who died two months ago. And that feels in a way, you know, like we're, we're late to the story. Um, but obviously, you know, it's such an enormous undertaking. But I think one thing I found is that doing them 
a little bit later, um, sometimes you get a little bit more of a step back view. You see um, family members posting a lot on the 30-day anniversary of their death, which in, you know, um, in, in Judaism is referred to as the stroshim, right? The 30-day mourning period. Um, and so sometimes those will be, you know, slightly less raw grief and you'll get a little bit more of that humor and you'll get a little bit more. So in some ways I feel a little comforted about our sort of delay in getting to these because we may actually be getting more information and, you know, more of a sense of who the people were. But there are many cases where we have very little information. And and so really all hats off to you for still bringing them to life and, and bringing a personal touch to them. Let's share a few of the stories that uh, that we were personally moved by. So you begin with uh, Lior Tarshansky. Yeah, I think Lior Tarshansky was one that, you know, none of them are, are particularly easy to write. Um, this one just, um, you know, was was notably difficult. Um, so Lior was killed on October 7th. Um, he was with his father and his sister, and his sister Gali, um, 13, was taken hostage in Gaza, and she was freed last week. Um, but until that point, um, Gali and Lior's parents basically said, you know, we cannot bury devote time to mourning Lior while our entire focus is dedicated to bringing Gali back. And so I think, you know, the interviews that their mother gave, um, she was obviously very emotional. And, you know, she said, we've apologized to Lior about the fact that we can't do this right now. Um, so what, now that Gali is home, I can imagine that the family uh, will move to, toward mourning. And that's something also that we've seen a lot over the past week is that so many hostages have come home, but almost all of them have lost, if not an immediate loved one, but family, friends. Um, so many of the stories are intertwined between those who have been taken hostage and those who have been killed. Um, you know, we talked also about the the Amal Goldsteins. They were also released, uh, the mother and three children, um, but their, you know, the family's father and their oldest daughter were killed on October 7th. And there's also a lot of discussion both before and after the release over how much do they know? Are they going to come back from 50 days in Gaza and find out that their loved ones were killed? Um, and which is, which is sort of preferential. So in that case, um, a, the mother did, did seem to know that, that her husband and her oldest daughter had been killed and it was almost, a relief for the family that they didn't have to tell them that sort of as they, um, you know, as they stepped into freedom. Um, and there have been some of the opposite where the family didn't know and they found out after they left, um, you know, Yonat O um, was killed and her two children, Noam and Alma, were taken captive and they did not know during that time. Um, and they found out after being released and their father is still in Gaza. So, you know, so much joy mixed with this grief. I would like to bring to the attention of our listeners Ashish Khodhari, who was a 25-year-old Nepalese national who was here in Israel as an agriculture student. And what really touched me about this particular person is that all of his family's hopes were basically pinned on him. His father took out a loan in his shop and everyone got into debt in the hope that after Ashish came back home to Nepal, he would be able to really raise the entire family from their situation. And now that he is gone, as his sister says, 
We are left with neither any business nor farmland nor our family's son. And so Hamas in this situation, the ripple effects are felt so deeply all the way across the world. Let's talk also about a matriarch who was awaiting the birth of her great-grandchild. Who is that? Yeah, so um, Bilha Epstein was 81 when she was murdered on her front porch by Hamas on October 7th. Um, and what, you know, horrific in and of itself, but what really stuck with me about her story and her family's story is that it was actually the, the fourth post in her family that we had written. Um, and then essentially, you know, Bilha was killed on October 7th. So was her um, son-in-law, Ophir Lipstein, who was the uh, local mayor, and two of her grandsons, uh, Netta Epstein and, and Nissan Lipstein. So one thing I can't help thinking about as I write these is thinking about the survivors who have left behind. So Vered Lipstein, her mother was killed, her husband was killed, her son was killed, and her nephew was killed all in the same day. And that's, you know, every story of grief is unimaginable. Um, but something like that is just incomprehensible. How does how does someone move on from that? And also Bilha's husband survived almost. So he lost his son-in-law and two grandchildren and his wife in the same day. So and unfortunately, that's not the only story like that. There are quite a number of stories like that, um, where so many family members at one time were killed. The the difficulty that I feel is obviously only a fraction of the grief that that family is going through, that they will be going through for a very long time. One of my sons caught me when I was reading the four articles that we try to publish daily. And I was crying, of course. And he said to me, Ima, are you okay? And I said, Yair, when I stop crying while I'm reading these, that's when we know there's a problem. So Amy, thank you for writing such personal and touching obituaries. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. Please check out another episode tomorrow. This episode was produced by The Podwaves. If you have a question or comment about this or other episodes, please drop us an email at podcast at timesofisrael.com. Until tomorrow, shalom. <laughs>